Con Radio, presented by Wizard World. Radio for geeks. Taz Like Can Bear Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Candare, a tribute to comics and pop culture right here on Wizard World's Con Radio. I am Jeremy Colley. And I am Jack Doherty. And I'm Handsome Jake. Handsome Jake, I That's like that. That's what they call me. <laughs> you have a lot of nicknames, Jake. Many, and more every day. <laughs> and joining us today from the caliber comic The Shepherd, Andrea Molinari, Kate Kinsler, and Cristobal Torres. Thanks for being with us, guys. Great to hear. Our pleasure. Did the I pleasure. butcher all your names? Yep. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so long as everyone is equally offended, we're all on this. Okay. All right. Fair enough. They're going to be talking about uh, their Kickstarter going for The Shepherd, Path of Souls, going till April 6th. So uh, we're going to touch on that a little bit later. But first, we're going to be talking about Spider-Man in this week's Retro Roundtable. I think it's... Uh, fitting as he made his Civil War trailer debut a few weeks back, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. So Definitely. we'll talk a little bit about that, talk some comics in the uh, comic dump bin, and then uh, turn our attention over to the crew from The Shepherd. So without any further delay, let's get into the Retro Roundtable. And away we go! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> back. <laughs> Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! All right, Spider-Man. I don't even know where to start. There's so many things to talk about with <laughs> Spider-Man. Start off with a quick poem. A quick poem? Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. <laughs> That's the word on the streets. Yeah. I feel like I should have little finger symbols like put in as you read this. <laughs> we'll start with our uh, guests here what about you guys uh what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of spider-man jazzy johnny ramita just you know ramita's uh, spider-man actually you know I, I, it's funny because that's such a classic you know visual depiction of him but um you know his son i mean you know ramita jr uh in many ways has also sort of you know left his mark you know but the, the thing the thing that's jumping out for me more in terms of spider-man now is uh, how with the new Civil War trailer, they really, they they really went back to sort of, you know, sort of the the, the 70s and the 80s a little bit with the costume. You know, I don't know. I got I got a feeling in terms of the mask that it had a little bit more of a retro feel to it, which I really enjoyed. I really liked. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think that's that. the one thing everyone can agree on is that the costumes are moving the right direction. Well, it's when uh, the eyes have a, a very, very heavy black outline yeah, around yeah, them that yeah. you get oh, yeah. that retro feel. Absolutely. Reminds me a little of the 1966 cartoon series, you know? Oh, yes. yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, well, that that uh, that was what I was waiting for. Uh, <laughs> I, I got to jump in on this because I have some very firm opinions about this, but I want to hear others' opinion. I, I want to ask the question, what is the best animated spider-man series oh i've got that one i know that the same one i know it's the same one as you yeah the early 90s spider-man yep okay that's my son my son argues for that i would argue contrary i think it's the spectacular spider-man the uh one that was fairly recent i'm not sure the exact uh 
didn't that, know which one you're talking about. Yeah, pretty good actually. It was. See, I, I have a soft, I have a soft spot for the, you know, the two that when I was growing up are, of course, the the original 1966, the Grand Trey Lawrence, and then, uh, of course, Spidey and his amazing friends. You oh know, yeah. I used to Saturday mornings to watch that and mm-hmm. introduced Firestar and everything. So you know, for me, uh, I don't know. I just have a very soft spot in my heart for that. Even though, like the one that you mentioned, Andrea is is probably you know much. Uh, better in, in some ways well for a new I, I guess what i like about it is for a relatively new take on spider-man it actually is quite faithful to the old school which i which really appealed to me really? right i've never watched that one i mean, I, th- I think i've seen maybe an episode or That's two and here, what yeah. i've seen wasn't bad but um yeah i didn't have any idea how close it actually was rooted to the comics there's well, a he's, like, he's like an i mean he's an actual high schooler in that one isn't he if I exactly yeah. exactly I see. And he's kind of got all the troubles that the original Spider-Man had, you know, in terms of uh, the, the conflicts between, um, you know, trying to manage his school, his, you know, his home life, the, the, the costume, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, I, I really like that. Getting, getting at me her, med, her medicine, if he can survive the battle with Mysterio. You know? Exactly, that kind of thing. <laughs> Two equally that. important tasks. I mean, you can't let one fall behind while you're working on the other. <laughs> Absolutely. But also in with Spider-Man is that he almost never wins in terms of on his personal life. You know, uh, that yes. was it's like he he may succeed, you know, as the hero. But um, often his personal life is a failure. You really can't catch a break. You know? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's why he roots so well with uh, fans, I think, because they can relate to, you know, nearly all the yeah, problems he deals with. Yeah. As For someone partner. that superhuman, he is yeah. very human. Yeah. yeah. It's true. It's very true. Like, my life can be a mess, and I can be a superhero, exactly. too. It, it, Spider-Man's it, doing it. Why can't I? He's, he's almost <laughs> defined by his failures in yeah. certain ways. You know, and, and you can see almost that, that these things, he just can't seem to make things work in mm-hmm. his personal life, and how much that drives him to be the better right. superhero, you know, to push that much harder in other aspects of who he is. Well, from a, from a moral perspective, it's interesting because it's it actually makes him a lot more obviously virtuous, I think, than some of the others in a way, because he really isn't getting any glory out of it. On the contrary, it just brings him not. more, yeah. you know, but he, he always goes and he tries to do the right thing anyway. And then the Spider-Man, he gets looked and down upon from J. Jonah Jameson all the time. Like, he's actually trying to save the day, but then right. he comes around and just bashes him down every time. So it's Either like, end, he can't win. Yeah. No yeah. one can accuse him of being selfish, I don't think. Exactly. <laughs> okay, let me let me drive the conversation even further here, if I may. Is I wanted to ask, favorite uh, Spider-Man villain? Or oh, if you right. have a couple, it's hard to pick. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. It's hard to pick. I'm going to toss mine out there because I put you on the spot. I got to tell you, I love Electro. Oh, and I'm not talking about yeah. the, the recent Electro in the movie. I'm talking about with the ridiculous star coming off his head. Yes. Uniform, <laughs> green, screaming green and yellow. Nice. Absolutely gaudy, you know, but I love that supervillain. He's practically a pro wrestler. With yeah. Like yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think what makes that classic Electro work is because, yeah, your initial reaction to his appearance is like, what's up with this guy, you know? But despite that comical appearance, he can still inflict uh, worry and fear and yeah. danger and become, you know... It's hard to explain. You you fear him no matter how ridiculous he looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember in the on PlayStation, uh, the Spider-Man Two game. It was called Enter Electro. 
the very last fight of that game is probably one of the best fights I've ever played in a video game ever. You fight Electro on the top of the skyscraper and you summon all this lightning in and oh, it was awesome. It's but, hard to pin down that epic feel in mm -hmm. a lot of games, but that one really knocked it out of the park. Oh, you feel like everything doubt. you've done has culminated in this moment. It's not yeah. just one more level they tacked on to the Very end. Very rewarding end to a game. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Favorite villain? I'd have to probably say Shocker. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Always trying to uh, claw to the top of the criminal chain. Yeah, yeah. Always yeah. Just yeah. Like the admire his down. persistence. Yeah. I don't know if it's one of the, <laughs> yeah. the fishnet yeah. stockings that he's got over or whatever it was. It was always kind of strange. <laughs> his skin's just yellow. It's just fish. <laughs> yeah. <It's> fish. <laughs> <laughs> How about the rhino? You got to you gotta like appreciate the, the battle For of the rhino simplicity. with Spider-Man. Yeah. What a moron. And he always loses the same way. You know, it's like, because he, he loses control and, you know, I mean, he's right. so overmatched as Spider-Man, but he just can't, he can't control his anger. I right. guess he outsmarted me again. Oh, no. Who could have seen this coming? I have to split my favorites between two. Um, the first one being the chameleon, just because any time he faced mm -hmm. the chameleon, it was such a challenge. This dude can disappear, you know, at the drop mm -hmm. of a hat. You know, how do you defeat someone that's that elusive? Yeah. Um, but probably my favorite oh, is uh, Mysterio. He's a great choice. Yeah. He's just a regular guy who knows his special effects inside and right. out to the point where he can mess with your mind so much that he becomes a worthy adversary. You know, it's it's a great... I love it. Doesn't that make him more dangerous than your average supervillain who's got this crutch of whatever inhuman power to lean on? This guy is just inherently clever yeah. and ambitious, you know? Yeah. He's willing to do whatever it takes to be that. He's, he's actualizing himself right. with what little skill set he has, you know? He's, and there's he's, something, go ahead. And there's, no, I'm sorry. I was just going to say there's also something kind of creepy in an interesting way about uh, an illusionist, you know, a villain yes. who's an illusionist. Oh, yeah. And, just to, and even just the theatricality and then as a, as a child, you know, watching it on, on an animation, uh, the, the, just the visual of, you know, instead of a head, it's that dome, you know, yeah. where you, you can't read any emotion or anything, you know, and always surrounded by the smoke. There's sort of like, a, even the name, you know, there's a certain mysteriousness to him and so on, you know? Yeah. Man, what an amazing! The dome movie. was the creepiest part too. I remember that yeah, scaring he'd, like, me a little Take it off his shoulders younger. and like roll it up and down <laughs> yeah. his shoulders and stuff. And, yeah. and what a great villain, though! Just oh, for absolutely. what? What a on paper, what a terrible villain, you know. But it all comes together in just the right way. It goes back to just what we were saying about uh, uh, the excuse me, Electro with the comical appearance at first, right, but right, you exactly. know, yeah. he's 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 pretty awesome. I like to see him <laughs> on the screen. One, oh, one, cool. one villain that I, I mean, I wouldn't say he's my, my favorite in the rogues gallery. I think he's, it's, he's kind of interesting because on the one hand he is, I mean, he's like an iconic Spider-Man villain would of course be the green goblin. But the, the thing that's interesting about him is that uh, on the surface of it, I mean, there's something very campy and, and even it could go very silly in terms of him. But then on the other hand, when you look at the whole psychological profile of Norman Osborn mm -hmm. and, you know, and then what he's capable of and what he actually does to Peter Parker and, uh, and just the whole how brilliant he is and then how twisted he is. There, there's a certain way in which he can, he, he becomes, he, depending how you write him and how you play him, he can be extremely menacing for someone who could potentially look so silly, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. In the, um, what was the, 
Superior Spider-Man, where Doc Ock was inside Peter Parker, like a year or two ago, that story arc. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was really cool, because the Green Goblin, I think, was one of the main stars of that series. He knew right away in facing that Spider-Man, this isn't Peter Parker. Yeah, I remember you just talking about that when he came back. Yeah, throughout that whole series, tormented him and really took after him, because he, he just... He knew. He's like, I can defeat this guy. This isn't the real Spider-Man. Well, they're in the middle of a battle when uh, they get switched back at the end of the series. And Spider-Man just makes one comment, some smart-ass comment. I don't remember exactly what he said, but just with that one line, the goblin's eyes, like, pierce at him. Like, oh, my God, I'm I'm in some serious trouble here. Like, this is the real (laughs) Peter Parker. (laughs) It it was a great moment in the, the comics for me. I, I used to like uh, on the and in terms of the the, the one from the uh, cartoon show from the '60s. You know, they used to uh, insert some of these just made up characters that they were not taken from the comics that they would just kind of create for the show. And some of them were just, I mean, extraordinarily lame. But um, <laughs> you know, I mean, incredibly like Doctor Noah body and you know people. <laughs> <laughs> Great for an Invisible Man character, you know. But then you have uh, some of these others that had this kind of creepy. Very interesting feel, like the, um, I, I remember, I don't remember his name, but it was, the, the, there was a character, he had this shrink ray, and then he had these, uh, the, the mannequins that, I don't know if you, if anybody remembers what I'm talking about. He would shrink things down to size to steal them, and then you had these, um, fembot-type mannequins who would, you know, with lasers, and, I mean, just really campy stuff like that, but that as a child, you look at it, it's kind of kind of creepy and interesting, you know? That sounds amazing. Fembots? <laughs> a Spider-Man <laughs> taking on fembots? I am down. Two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> before, about ten years before the, the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman introduced them, so... <laughs> Breaking new ground. But they, didn't, but they didn't call them that. They, they were they were like mannequins that were brought to life or some 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 such, you know. Right. But yeah, then they had this other one. She was this uh, very corny schoolmorm librarian type who would like bring to life these uh, statues taken from Greek mythology, and then they'd go, you know, oh, just just crazy stuff like that. Huh. Well, it's probably a good thing some of these villains didn't make their way into the <laughs> yeah. comic. Yeah, they had right one note power. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're like the they're like the hostess uh, food pie uh, villains in the comics, you know. These right. are one of the features, you know. It's like the Batman '66. Some of those villains, like Vincent Price right. playing the egghead, egg oh, yeah. like, <laughs> you don't want to see that come into a modern uh, Batman. Speak yeah. for yourself, please, because I am all about that concept. <laughs> Favorite villains, that's a tough question. You know, when I think about villains, the thing that fascinates me most is is the kind of freedom the villain archetypes affords a character, Mm -hmm. unbound from morality, from right and wrong. They're not hindered in that way. And that's such an attractive concept to me, certainly not a way to live my life. Right. Right. You know, but but it's for that reason, it's so far removed from the day to day condition. It interests me. So to think of my favorite villain, what I kind of have to do is put myself in the shoes of that villain. When yeah. I, re- I was, like, agonizing between, like, Green Goblin or Hobgoblin, I don't mind whichever iteration, and Dr. Octopus, and I was thinking Dr. Octopus comes off to me as kind of a conflicted character. 
he does villainous things, but he has his own motivations, which, however arcane, makes sense to him. Yeah. But the Green Goblin, to me, represents this kind of unbridled menace. Mm-hmm. This is a figure that literally flies around on a bat-shaped hoverboard, bombing things almost at random. Yeah. Gleefully, he's always cackling. No one is more pleased with himself than the Green Goblin. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you look at him and you know he's just got it all figured out in his own head. So I'm going to have to say Green Goblin's my favorite because he's so purely chaotic. He's just so villainous right, in that yeah. way that's unshackled. And- well, he's thing. a trickster. He's a trickster. Exactly. Yeah, and I love that concept. And this is kind of cliche to say because obviously the Green Goblin to Spider-Man is pretty much the Joker to Batman. Sure. But not just because of his, it's his biggest adversary, but the Green Goblin is the kind to go out and you know cause all kind of mayhem, inflict pain on all kinds of people just to get to one person. Exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. to put the collateral the damage is meaningless. The yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The ends always justify the means for Green Goblin. You're right. You're and right. he is willing to perform whatever means within his power. Oh man, great characters. Great characters. Well, comic arcs for me, when I started reading Spider-Man was in the early to mid-90s during the whole clone uh, thing where, who was it? Ben Riley comes to town and says, you know, I'm actually the real Spider-Man. You're, you're just a mere clone of me. So then he can becomes the spectacular Spider-Man, I think it was, and uh, or sensational, I don't remember. But there was a whole while there where it was him as Spider-Man, and it was pretty cool, but the story then just kind of drug on, and I got disinterested, as I typically do with the Spider-Man comics. There's many highs and lows. <laughs> there will always be something that pushes me away. Like in the mid-2000s, there was the One More Day uh, story arc. Oh, I agree. I was done with that. That was just... I, I Yeah. And that was right on the verge, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, Straczynski's run of, of The Amazing Spider-Man, if I'm not mistaken. It's right on the edge of, at, at the end of it. I checked out, so, it was like so hardcore, I couldn't even tell you. I was like so mad at the end of that uh, arc that I just quit following for a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't like that they undid, that they retro, uh, what's the term that they, they, you know, that they eliminated from continuity. The uh, retcon, I think is yeah. the retcon. Yeah. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, as a DC fan, I should be very familiar with that. Word. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, even though I didn't, I hated that, but the story itself, if they were going to do it, it was actually a very poignant and extremely well done story. I just, right. I just didn't like what they yeah, I didn't like the ending. You know, the end seemed way too way easy too for easy. the build-up. You know, like, yeah. Let's yeah. just start over. Yeah, we don't know what else to say. Let's just put them back to square one and it's, write it again. It's it's lame. It's lame to sort of go back and say, okay, so this character has had all these years of character development, and now we're just going to make. We're, it's like we're going back to to Amazing Fantasy number fifteen almost. You know, it yeah. just didn't seem to make sense to me. No, yeah, everything we had read up to that point was then somewhat deemed useless. I mean, what was the point of reading all this if we're just going to start all over again? No one reads a comic book looking for regression, you know, hoping that what they've learned over the years, what they've obsessed over is suddenly meaningless. Right, yeah. Man. It's it's a problem, though. Um, I think about this myself as a writer. Um, You know, you have these characters like Spider-Man that has decades of life. You know, and after a while, it becomes this. I mean, we as readers, we don't want to hear somebody say this, but it becomes this um, this burden that the writer is now trapped under this just decades of storytelling. Right. And uh, and I, I almost feel like 
what they should do with these characters, with the whole universe, is say, okay, this universe we're going to write for 10 years. Right. And at the end of 10 years, we are just going to dial it back and we'll, you know, rethink and we'll maybe make some changes and stuff like that and then see where it goes. Kind of let itself play out. And you could actually let characters die, mm -hmm. you know, with the idea and everybody kind of knows us in on this, that this yeah. is, you know, Earth, whatever it is. Correct. You know, and this in, you know, at the end of the 10 years, there will be a reboot. You know, part of the problem is they do some of this rebooting stuff, but they do it, you know, every like five minutes, it seems. That's oh, the problem, yeah. you know, which is not good. Or what um, we see is now where they're like, you know, sort of rebooting and yet not rebooting. And then, it, you know, it's in the same continent. And then, you're, you're, you know, just doesn't make any sense, you know. Right. Um, exactly. Like how many times do we have to see an origin story? Oh, you know? yeah. right. At least one more. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> It's bad when the, <clears throat> these characters get a movie of themselves because every time a movie or, and then the sequels of those movies start coming out, there's always a new number one on the shelf, a new, yeah. brand new number one, you know, yeah. playing to the uh, people who want to have the complete collection. Well, it's a number one. Yeah. Anywho, I think that's, uh, that's probably a good place to stop right there. Yep. Talking about the old webhead. I love Spider-Man. We'll have to talk about him some more sometime. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, let's just jump into the comic dump bin. All right. Um, I think I'll just go first this week. Get this one out of the way. Well, you finished that one. I haven't... Or, no, I did finish it today. I got about halfway through it and then uh, sat on it for the longest time, but then I did finish it today. <clears throat> the book I have is an image title, I believe. Yes. Called The Wicked and the Divine. And pretty much what it's about... The pop stars that we know today, like, uh, for instance, like Rihanna or Kanye West, these kind of people are actually gods like incarnate it's weird like every 90 years 12 gods come to earth in form of pop stars to influence people and just i don't know live for two years and then they die kind of like the uh janice joplin jimmy hendrix okay. all of them dying real young they're right, right. kind of playing on that there but um, this begins with a, uh, a young girl who's at one of these concerts saying, oh, I'd give every, anything to be that girl up on stage having such influence over everybody. And uh, it, next thing she knows, you know, the girl on stage makes eye contact with her and she faints. Well, she wakes up like in a, uh, like a, some room where this concert's happening, where they're taking everyone who's passing out. And there's a girl sitting next to her who's going by the name of Lucy, who was another pop star that when she wakes up, she recognizes, like, oh my god, you're, you're Lucy, you know, and she's actually, it's actually short for Lucifer, she's one of the gods, Lucifer. So, she is, uh, this is a really confusing book, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell you the best <laughs> I know I how that here. is. Sometimes. You're doing fine. Some of the stuff I've read. I've got to go back and read it to make total <laughs> sense of it all, but, um, what I'm getting from it was when that girl said, I would give anything to be that girl. You know, Lucy's there to make it happen, making a deal with the devil kind of a right. thing, you know. So she starts hanging out with Lucy, and Lucy takes her to all these exclusive events because all these gods, all these pop stars, you know, convene. They have, like, a meeting area where they all sit in a big circle. But um, she takes her to meet one of these other girls by the name of M Emma Tarasu, I think it is. Who's yeah, also the Japanese deity. Mm-hmm. Like I really the, don't know. It's like the mother goddess of Japan's okay, there you go. pantheon. Yes. Yeah, See, cool. I don't know that stuff. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I need to... That's why I don't understand this book so much. But uh, no, they're uh, doing an interview with her, and she's trying to convince these reporters and everything that they actually are gods without actually demonstrating any of her powers or anything. 
And next thing you know, there's like a there's a dot shining on one of their chests, and someone thinks they're playing with a laser pointer. Really, there's a couple gunmen across the street who, from what I gather, they didn't elaborate on their story too much, but these two guys knew who these pop stars were, that they're gods, and they're trying mm-hmm. to assassinate them. Well, the, uh, the, the Lucy character just kind of walks up, snaps her fingers, and their heads just explode. She's like... <laughs> This is why we don't show you our powers. We don't want to scare the living crap out of you, you know. But then she's uh, under investigation for that. And uh, while she's in court being tried for this, the judge judge's head explodes. But it wasn't her. It wasn't her. Someone's framing her. So you spend the rest of this book trying to figure out which god actually has framed Lucy. It's, it's hard to explain in five minutes. But I'm going to leave you with that. The Wicked and the Divine really good read that's hmm. like an interesting commentary on yeah. how we exalt these celebrity figures yeah, yeah, yeah exactly exactly all right who's next uh, i might go next if right. no one's clamoring for it yeah um what i'm sharing today isn't a traditional comic book but i thought it was close enough and certainly interesting enough that it bore mentioning uh, it's the book is titled very plain cartoons of world war ii and it's a collection of all the kinds of uh, sort of poster illustrations, propaganda cartoons, recruitment illustrations, things like that, used throughout every country involved in World War II. And it's really extraordinary um, seeing, you know, images we're used to, very patriotic, you know, sort of super nationalist things we get from countries like America and Germany. Right. We've got proud you know, strong soldiers with broad shoulders saluting their respective flags. You know, join now, such and such, fight this creature. Where the enemy's always depicted as some big hulking gorilla or something right. to that effect. But the the illustrations in the book I found most interesting came from countries sort of caught in a crossfire. Uh, one came out of Poland, actually, that had this extraordinary, almost Van Gogh-esque landscape, kind of abstract and exaggerated. Sure. And looming over this entire landscape with all its villages and the tree line was the figure of a World War I soldier with his gas mask and his sloping helmet and his wings. He had these black feathered wings outstretched that were kind of encompassing the land. And it was like the shadow of war on this country. And that one image was such a powerful insight into the attitude of these people who understood they were right between the hammer and the anvil. You know, despite what they're hearing from one side or the other, it won't end well. And uh, some of the most extraordinary, in, in terms of like creativity, uh, cartoons came out of Germany. I guess they had some, or <laughs> I don't know, enslaved some talented artisans, artists for their uh, for their propaganda machine. One was interesting. It was a, a, um, a, a warning image saying, you know, blackout when there's an air raid. And the illustration was an American bomber belching black smoke out of the engines and rising from the smoke was the torso of this skeleton holding one of those old-fashioned cherry bombs in one of its hands just looming (laughs) over this city and the phrase was like um der feind sieht dein licht or something like the enemy sees your light and it's extraordinary seeing things like that from what we think of as the enemy right you know that illustration however tied it is to one of the most evil organizations in all of humanity was essentially telling civilians, black out at night or your family's in danger. Right. And it really casts an interesting light on everything. That's some scary stuff right there. It's an incredible book. And uh, I, like an idiot, I didn't bring the physical copy <laughs> with me. You're just making this up, aren't you? Oh, of you? course. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to have this published in a week or so. Just pretend. No, it's um, really one of the most extraordinary things. It's really, really powerful stuff. Really heart-wrenching things that you see. And it, it really... Took me on a ride that one. Wow! Yeah, it's yeah. weird to see 
in different countries, their stuff, how scary it is against us, but our stuff is always comical. Making oh, yeah. fun of them. Yeah, yeah, it's always yeah. satire. That seemed to be them. what sold with American audiences. Yeah. You want to see the enemy look like buffoons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And certainly depictions of the Japanese as these sort of fanged monsters. They weren't pulling any punches. No. They weren't afraid <laughs> to dehumanize the enemy. Kind of like in the, the first Captain America, and I believe they really did this at uh, USO shows that would travel around or whatever they called them, but uh, they have, you know, like a line of chorus girls say, and then oh, someone yeah. dressed up as Hitler kind of sneaks <laughs> yeah. out, and they, you He'd know, kick him in the rear him. end, and he scampers right, right. away, or, you know, I know exactly what you mean. That's, yeah. I'm not, you'd have to bring that book over. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just called Cartoons of World War II, and it's extraordinary. Can't recommend it highly enough. Alrighty. Very cool. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Dr. Seuss, uh, who actually did quite a bit of uh, World War II uh, cartoons. Yeah, yeah, there are a number of his did. illustrations in the book. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, very I mean, prolific, yeah. Yeah. It was all over it. And it's interesting because the style, you recognize it right away. If you've seen any of his children's books and you see these these war uh, propaganda cartoons, it's stunning. It really the recognition is. Recognition is immediate, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So I got uh, this. The book that I read is going to be a movie coming out pretty soon called uh, Civil War. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it? I don't know. I don't know, yeah. We may, we may have. <laughs> One of those good. sleeper hits that flies under the radar. <laughs> and I know from a... I always knew the basis of the story, and then playing uh, Ultimate Alliance 2, that followed oh, the whole Civil yeah. War story, yeah, too. Yeah, that I forgot about cool. that. And I always sided with Cap, just because of the whole freedom, you can't tell us sure. what to do type of thing. But reading this and getting to see the down and dirty, even though I haven't read the whole thing, I just read up to where Spider-Man... Took oh, his head yeah. up. I'm kind of torn on which side I would actually go. <laughs> <I don't... laughs> well, you, you know, we laugh, but that's what makes that story so great. And I hope that's what they convey into the movie so well. Is yeah, it's equally split. You don't know where to lie, mm-hmm. really. But I'm sorry, continue. Oh, that's I was. That's pretty much where I was going. Like I side with Cap, but at the same time, that you know, you really should have some kind of yeah hold against the the superpower people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a good read. Highly recommend that one. Got my tickets already. When is that? That's uh, May 7th. Free, May comic 7th. Book, free comic book weekend. Oh, man. Oh, it's going to be a busy weekend yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. Clear your like last year. <laughs> last year with what? Spider-Man? Or no, it was Ultron last year? Last year was Ultron. Mm-hmm. The year and before Spider-Man, Spider-Man yeah, too. So, yep. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Who would like to go next? Well, there's a lot of different directions that I could go with this, but I guess I'll just talk about where what I'm reading right now. And uh, basically what I'm reading is, uh, in light of all these Netflix, you know, Daredevil and Jessica Jones and that stuff, I've I've always been a big fan of Luke Cage. And I love, I I gotta say that the best thing about Jessica Jones, that series, in my opinion, was Luke Cage. Absolutely. Um, I could take or leave her, but but I really loved seeing him in live action for the first time. And in light of that, I remember, you know, I'm 48, so I actually read a lot of this stuff when it first was coming out in the 1970s. And so I said to myself, I'm going to start from the beginning and read, you know, Luke Cage, you know, his first appearances and his, the title is called Luke Cage Hero for Hire. And uh, they do um, 16 issues of it before it morphs into a different title, Luke Cage Power Man. And, um, and I'm reading this stuff, and um, I can remember thinking that it was really cool, you know, because here was a black superhero. And it's like there really weren't a lot of black superheroes. I'm not right. sure 
if there were any at this stage. I'm, I'm guessing that there had to have been, right? Um, I, Not although that I, I don't can think of. I mean, um, I don't know if the, no, Fal- I can't I don't know if the Falcon would have preceded him or been around. I, the yeah, I, I don't after. know. And I don't know about DC, you know, where right. they were with that. Um, but in reading through these things, I mean, it's still, these are still cool comic books, but you could tell that they're dated. I mean, they're very kind of a stereotypical kind of like, the language that he uses, you know, you're jiving me and this kind of stuff. <laughs> no, it's 1970s, okay, but but at the same time, I'd really be interested to talk. To, see, I'm I'm you know Caucasian. And I'm curious, you know, an African American person who is my age, what was the impact of these books on them? Because for me, I liked it because I thought it was really cool that there was a black superhero. I mean, I thought that this made sense. Why would it be all white people being superheroes? Why couldn't there be superheroes from different countries, which necessarily involved, you know, different people from different backgrounds? I was kind of sensitive to this because my father was an immigrant. I mean, granted, from Europe, from Italy, but um, seeing the way that he was treated with a lot of prejudice uh, because he spoke with an accent, um, it made me sensitive to people who were different than me. And I liked the idea that there would be a different superhero. And I can remember as a kid reading these comic books and seeing that he would encounter, you know, things the way that people would talk about him because he was black. Right. And I'd be very curious now to see, you know, we've come, I think a long way. We have a long way to go with regard to racial issues in this country, but sure. You know, at the same time, I do think that this comic book and this figure, Luke, that it was a breakthrough in some way, just to even envision a black man as a, the hero, as, you know, and as a genuinely good hero. He, I don't know if you know the original story, he was convicted of a crime he didn't commit. He ended up uh, be volunteering for this experiment that um, one of the um, prison guards who hated him uh, interfered with the, the uh, experiment and it ended up uh, exposing him to excessive uh, amounts of the of the energy that they were working with and which gave him this these powers the strength the you know uh, impenetrable skin that sort of thing um, you know this was a this character was a big deal you know and and like I said to have him portrayed I think you know pretty positively. Um, yeah, you know, I, I guess I, that's, it's just a title that I'm rereading now, you know, and I'm just thinking about these issues now, um, now that we have like, say, for example, Falcon is, is in the role of Captain America right now. Right. Um, you know, and even just seeing, you know, African-American actors, uh, and actresses playing important roles you know, whether it be on television or in movie adaptations of the, these comic book heroes. Exactly. You know, and I think that that's a major step forward, really. You know, like I said, we, we haven't arrived. I don't want to give that impression. Right. No, I totally agreed. And, you know, we still see that today. You know, the Fantastic Four, the Human Torch has uh, become a black guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just on mm-hmm. movie screens, but in the comics as well. And then we have Miles Morales, is it? As the, yeah, the right. Spectacular. I think he's just Spider-Man now, which, if you ask me, uh, is probably the title to be reading. I had to step away once again from Spider-Man after the whole Battle World thing happened. Yeah. With Spider-Man International. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I know totally what you're saying. 
one uh, title that uh, actually, uh, you know, a couple of them that are coming to mind right now, but one that, that stands out is uh, L'Invasion Invisible. It's a French title. It's, it, it's available in English as The Invisible Invasion, and it's kind of interesting. I discovered it digitally, and it's um, basically, you know, it's, it's kind of like the premise is sort of like the... Uh, the plot of an old sci-fi movie, but it's very, very interestingly executed. So it's basically this, um, there are these plants that uh, arrive on Earth, these extraterrestrial plants, and then they sort of uh, release some sort of pollen that kind of affects the minds of humans. And what happens is people start having this instinct to care for them. Basically what it does is it sort of uh, takes other organisms, in this case, human beings, and then kind of turns their sort of instinctive urge for survival and directs it toward the plant. So, wow. yeah, it's it's really interesting. And then, of course, some really funky, very sort of disturbing things happen as a result of it, because on the surface, everything looks normal, uh, but uh, people don't remember the sort of initial incident that sort of led to them. There was, I find, it's been a while, but I think there was some sort of a meteor or something that, that hid and that's how they got here. People forget, and of course, like with a lot of these kinds of films and or, or comics, uh, you have a, a small group of people. You have an individual who kind of is the only one that remembers and then trying to piece it together and why doesn't and, and anyone else remember and why are people willing to go to sort of uh, ridiculous lengths, uh, even to the point in some cases of committing murder, you know, in order to protect these things and to make sure that they thrive as an organism and so on, you know, and people have them on little planters on their windowsills and stuff. So it's really interesting, uh, very well written. Uh, one thing that I find visually interesting about it is uh, the technique that the artist uses. His name is Sébastien Girard, and what he does is he, he uh, actually hires real actors and then he photographs them. And then he kind of, I, I suppose maybe, I don't know if he does it digitally, but he kind of uh, draws traces from the photographs and then he, you know, does, he works with that. Almost like rotoscoping when it be yes. still images. Exactly. It's sort of like rotoscoping, exactly. Instead of an animated film, it's like a rotoscoped comic almost. So, mm -hmm. it, but it, 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 you know, it does give it kind of almost like a cinematic feel. Um, and even just in terms of the, you know, just the, the, the realness of the, the characters, you know, they're kind of like real people because they kind of are, you know, but it's, it's really, really worth checking out. It's very, very good. Almost reminds me, there was a movie that came out within the past 10 years. It was one of the uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies. <laughs> um, the Happening. The Happening. Where the, which yeah. just seems like the lobotomized version of this invisible Yeah, movie. this one I think seems a lot better. It sounds extraordinary. It's yeah. going right to the top of my list. In the movie, what was it? The Mother Earth had had enough and <laughs> put this like pheromone out that once a like person reversed it survival in, instinct. Yeah, it immediately made that person kill themselves. Interesting. To, uh, yeah, oh, it was yeah. atrocious. I like your. I like the one you uh, read better. <laughs> well, yeah, M Night Shyamalan too is supposed to have like the big twist, but you like figure out what's going yeah, on. Yeah, like, their twist right is away. that somehow this movie was actually made and <laughs> die on the cutting room floor. I got you in the theater. <laughs> got your money, suckers. <laughs> All right, who would like to go next? All right, I'll take that as the end of the comic dump bin, then. <laughs> All right, now that uh, we've ended our comic dump bin, let's move right into... Real World Heroes! 
Jack, who do we have this week? We got two heroes that went together in this one. Roy Madrill Jr. and Chris Martinez from Tucson, Arizona. And what have Roy and Chris done to deserve a spot in our wall of justice? Well, one day back in 2004, uh, they were about 16 years old. They were they went to their first day of uh, their summer job. They stopped at a gas station to fill up their mom's caddy before they headed to the uh, their job. They heard a woman screaming. Uh, he has my kids. He's still in my car. The woman had been standing next to her car, uh, talking to her mom while her six-year-old kid, son, and uh, two-year-old daughter were in the car. Some guy ran up, jumped in the car, took off. Oh, man. So these kids decided they're going to go after him, jumped in the car, took off after him, blaring the horn the whole time. Uh, uh, Chris was behind the wheel. He told Madrill to call 911 on his cell phone and gave a running commentary the whole time they were chasing him. Cops ended up catching them, pulling their guns out. While they were chasing, uh, the little boy fell out of the car. I don't know if oh, he jumped man. out, but he ended up being okay. But yeah, they caught up to the guy. Uh, police told them to back up because they had their guns drawn. And they arrested the guy that spent six and a half years in jail. He shouldn't spend more. That's yeah. ridiculous. I can't believe there's pe- oh, people, man. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what. What motivates these people? I don't know. I don't no know. idea. How removed are you from humanity? <laughs> yeah. But, but thanks you- to these two guys that... They they went ahead and chased them, and because that guy could have got away real quick. Oh, oh yeah, easily. easily. Yeah, Two yeah, little yeah. kids in the car. That Chris Guts, yeah. Chris and Roy. Chris and Roy. Yep. And for that, Chris and Roy, you have found a spot on a wall of justice in the Hall of Heroes. <laughs> Imagine how bad that could have gone. All right. Well, with that, let's just turn our attention right over to Andrea, Kate, and Cristobal, and talk about the Shepherd. Thanks so much again for being with us today, guys. Happy to do so. Good to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing uh, some research into the shepherd, and I actually found a uh, another podcast. Like, sorry, I can't remember what the name of it was, but where uh, uh, Andrea, you, yourself, and uh, Roberto were on there talking about the shepherd, and I was very intrigued to find out that the concept for this book actually came from a dream you had. Yes, it was actually a nightmare. Um, and I, I've given this story, so I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of it. But uh, it's uh, basically, I had this dream that my son, uh, who was about 16, 15, 16 at the time, uh, that he had told me he was going to go to a movie, but ended up going to a, a party. And at that party, he uh, tried methamphetamine for the first time, and it actually killed him. Mm. And uh, I was absolutely devastated, as you can imagine, in my dream. And in the course of this dream, it was as if all this is happening to me all at once. And uh, I began to feel, you know, as this it's like the funeral was happening and all the you know family coming and all this stuff, you know, just happening. And I began to feel like he was calling out to me from the other side that somehow he had transitioned and. You know, in the midst of this, of course, I'm, you know, despairing and grieving his loss and everything. And, um, you know, basically what ends up happening is I ended up uh, in my dream taking my own life because I believed that somehow I could go after him into the afterlife and, and save him from whatever was hap- has happened to him. And, um, you know, the, the dream played itself out. I woke up. My heart was racing. Uh, I my wife was was there beside me and i told her what had happened she was pretty horrified and uh you know i didn't know what to do with it and eventually i worked up the courage to tell my son about it 
And he was like, oh, that's so cool. And I'm like, no, no, it is not cool. Uh, it is not cool to dream about you dying of a methamphetamine overdose. Uh, yeah, that's not cool. But, um, you know, he was pretty convinced, you know, from the beginning that we needed, you know, to write this up, to write this story up. What was weird about this dream is that, you know, most every dream that I've ever had, you know, I may remember it for a few seconds after waking up, but then it's just like water through your hands, you know, right. and um, it's gone. But this particular dream just kind of like was seared into me like a brand almost. I just couldn't couldn't forget it. I've never had a dream like that before or since. It's kind of a once in a lifetime type thing. Right. And um Anyway, my son, Roberto, um, who should have been with us today, but wasn't because he's actually on the road traveling uh, from Michigan back here to Florida. Um, he really kind of pestered me. I don't think there's a nice way to say this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just was relentless. Uh, Sometimes about, that's what it takes. You know? Oh, yeah. It was, <laughs> you know, a lot of it was, you know, at the time I was heading up a school I was in an academic administration. I was, you know, what my free time that I did have, I was doing scholarly publications and all that sort of thing. And I just didn't have time for it. But in June of 2011, my, um, you know, I finished a major project. There was another project on the horizon, but that wasn't going to start for a couple months. And I basically had a couple months of a window that had opened. And uh, he somehow got wind of it. I must have made the mistake of mentioning it to my wife in his presence or something. And, and then he really turned up the screws. And, um, you know, basically, he finally talked me into it. You know, I really didn't have any more excuses to give. So I, he kind of stood over my shoulder the whole time as I'm writing this up. And I, you know, I, I didn't know how this was going to go, but it ended up flowing. The story just flowed out of me like water. And, uh, you know, we, we got it down. And by the beginning of July of 2011, it was already done. Wow. And, yeah. You know, I thought, okay, well, there it's written. I hope you're happy. You know, God bless you. Now go away. And uh, you know, he was like, oh no, 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 this is going to be a comic book. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I don't know anything about that. I mean, yes, we've read many, many comic books. I, you know, I have thousands of comic books that I have in my own collection. God help me. And uh, you know, yeah, I've read a few comic books, but um, I have no idea of what to do. And he said, well, let's start looking into it. So we looked online and eventually found a company called Scattered Comics Studios out of Sacramento, California. And um, it's headed up by a gentleman named Jason Doobie. And uh, Jason is a comic book artist first and also a writer of his own titles. And he started this company uh, where they publish, you know, it's a publishing company and they publish and distribute to uh, comic book stores across the country. But they also have a studio where he's recruited young artists and colorists, et cetera. And if you have a project to bring to them, you can literally go through and they have, if you go to their website, you can see it for yourself, Scattered Comics Studios. And uh, you can literally pick out your artist in a drop-down menu, pick out your colorist, they have letterers, et cetera, and literally put together a uh, comic book creative team. Wow. And then he works as kind of the project manager and just kind of, you know, works as a go-between with the artists and stuff like that. And you literally go page by page until your comic book is complete. And and that's what we did. We, we worked from, uh, by the time we started, it was September of 2011 and we finished it, I want to say 
December of 2014. So it was about three years or so of work, a little less than three years of work um, on the project. But uh, it was it was an amazing, amazing experience, uh, unlike anything that I'd ever done before. But that's basically kind of the origin story of of how the of the shepherd came about. We uh, really enjoyed reading it. I love books where you, you just you take where the character takes on an, an adventure into the complete unknown, and uh, that's what this is. And oh, I just can't wait to dig deeper into it. Now it looks like you guys uh, have a different creative team this time than last time, correct? It is true. Uh, Ryan, who is the uh, artist of the first story, it's called Apocatastasis, uh, which is a Greek word. Um, and I pronounced it so you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and it literally translates to restoration. And um, there is an explanation of that in the, in the book itself. And, um, but basically what it makes reference to is uh, an early Christian uh, theology that was actually started by a famous uh, theologian by the name of Origen of, of Alexandria. And uh, the basic idea is that in the end, God will see to it that everyone is saved. Now, that doesn't mean you get a free pass, do whatever you want, you know, it's all good. But that rather that in the, the aeons of time, in the passage of time, we will all be brought through various means and various ways and through various difficulties to God. Uh, and that, you know, for different people, some their path will be relatively straight and relatively unhindered. Others, it's going to be more difficult depending on them. But the key thing of that is that uh, the path's difficulty or lack thereof is based not on God's decision, but on our decision, our ability to cooperate with what needs to be done in our soul to prepare us for, for the next step. And um, I love that idea uh, because I've never really been comfortable with the idea of this, you know, hell, uh, the idea of eternal damnation for somebody. Because to me, um, I'm a father. And, you know, of course, Christianity teaches us that we should be thinking about God in those terms. And, uh, you know, I just could not imagine, you know, it's like your son does something wrong or your daughter does something wrong, well, we'll kill you. You know, I mean, it's, right. I realize that there are families where that actually happens, but we put those people in jail, you know. Um, right. Uh, that's not a fatherly or parental, you know, attitude or behavior that we condone as a society. And so, therefore, if we imagine that God would be the best parent possible, that, um, you know, this is basically an extrapolation of that is that in the end that God never quits on anyone. And um, that's a very hopeful theology, a very hopeful idea of God. And that's really the kind of the basis of this story is that uh, no one is ever um, given up on that, you know, as long as it takes, whatever it takes, that that is going to happen to get us to where we need to go. So that's very kind cool. of the core of the, of the series, not just that, the uh, first story, Apocatastasis, which is basically the origin story. I had to laugh earlier. I said, well, it's another origin story. Yep. You've got to start somewhere, though, you know. Um, but it's, it's a story that is very much influenced by otherworldly journeys. Uh, you may or may not know this, but as far as we know, the earliest known piece of Western literature is the Gilgamesh epic, which is a uh, uh, Sumerian, Babylonian 
Mesopotamian uh, story, you know, modern day Iraq, Iran, basically, uh, more Iraq, by the way, than Iran. Um, and it deals with a journey into the afterlife. He has uh, a pretty rough go of things. He always seems to catch a break in that. <laughs> exactly. Very much so. And of course, these ideas of the journeys to the afterlife, you find them in Homer's uh, Odyssey, uh, Virgil's Aeneid. Uh, you see it in the Egyptian, you know, literature of the uh, of the afterlife. Um, it it runs through many cultures, um, and I think that this is really in that tradition, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, that sort of thing. So anyway, this circles back around to where we're headed with the new um, artistic team. You were asking about that. Yeah, uh, Brian is continuing on. Uh, but also we have uh, three other artists that are working with us, two of which are with us today, Cristobal uh, Torres Iglesias and then Kate Kinsler. And uh, Kate's role is, Kate is going to be a special cover artist for us. She is a formally trained iconographer. I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of uh, early Christian or Christian icons. Um, these are symbolic windows into heaven. I'll let Kate explain that a little bit in more sure. detail. Uh, and then Cristobal, uh, what we're doing with this um, this story arc that we're doing, the, the sequel, the second one, is called The Path of Souls. And The Path of Souls is, um, it deals with a part of purgatory. We call it the seam. It's that place between this world and the next. Right. Uh, souls that are, that are in transition, it's where they are. This particular part of that area is an area where the souls of those who have fallen in battle go uh, to work out their issues. And uh, this was kind of provoked by the idea that uh, my wife works for the Veterans Administration and her work is dealing with those who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the question I kind of asked myself was, okay, these soldiers who have seen combat, these veterans who have come back, they've suffered you know, from experiences of combat, and trauma, and um, you know they suffer from post-traumatic stress. What if someone were killed in combat? When they get to the afterlife, would they still be suffering from you know post-traumatic stress? And so, yeah. obviously, it's fiction. So I said, yeah, yeah. What would that look like? And that's basically the attempt to do this. And we are telling the story of four different soldiers from different cultures and time periods. And um, I'll just run through them really quickly. We have one U.S. Marine who was killed in Fallujah, the second battle of Fallujah that took place in November of 2004. We have a Confederate soldier uh, who was killed at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December of 1862. We have the soldier that Cristobal is doing, uh, his name is Henri uh, Jacques uh, Tournier, as you can hear, he's a Frenchman, who uh, fought with uh, Napoleon in, during his campaign in Egypt uh, and Palestine, which would have been 1798-99. And then our fourth character is a character by the name of Sandakwa, who is a Huron-Wendat Indian, uh, American uh, Indian, who uh, was killed uh, during the Iroquois-Huron Wars of the late 1640s. And uh, Cristobal is handling, as I said, one of those story arcs. Each of the story arcs is going to be done by a different artist. And oh, so very they, cool. that when they tell their story, we see it through a different set of eyes. I love that one. That comic that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. I'm really behind that concept. Awesome. Well, I'll let them talk to you about it. Uh, maybe we could start with Kate uh, and Kate can explain to you what she does as an iconographer. I think you'll find it intriguing. Yeah, I'm very curious. 
You're right. Well, the whole story is about the other world, and um, the shepherd moves back and forth uh, in the first book. You reckon? Remember, he goes back and forth. Right. In the second book, uh, we don't see him coming back to this time, but he is moving through a lot of different places and times in in that uh, story. Well, an icon is a very formal type of painting. And actually, it's not painting, it's writing the truth. And that is just who this shepherd is, talking about truth and being able to unpack all of that. Well, that's what an icon does. It reveals the truth of the other world to this world and this world looking into the other world. And this is out of the Christian religion, out of a Christian spirituality. And the my what Andre has asked me to do is uh, for the cover to show to to write who the shepherd is. What is this story about? What is the scene? You know, the the space, this place in between. And um, I, one of the one of the dilemmas I'm realizing is I have an image of the shepherd based on the first book, the first graphic novel. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the shepherd looks like in this graphic novel yet. Oh, you do have a challenge ahead of you, don't you? Yes, I do. And I have to wait until I see who, who, what the shepherd looks like before I can do it. However, I use the image of the first book just as a template, just to begin. But I have all the rest of the icon ready to go in my head. Um, and I want to show the scene moving out of the picture into this world so that there, the, there's a technique in iconography that I can use to, to move into this world. But also that Andre explains to me that the scene is, a, is, a, is an organic space and it has uh, the capacity to be in a movement of life and um, development of more than than we know. So it can it starts like the first book. If you go back to that, the shepherd, very dark, right? Dark. Oh my! And so, <laughs> <laughs> so part of the scene is that darkness. And there's a technique in, in um, I think it's Italian Renaissance art, where one side of the picture, of the painting, shows death through uh, barren branches and darkness and and, yes. and the other side of the painting it shows life. And there's where you have fruit fruit trees and birds and grass and sunshine and all of that. Well, I want to use that technique within here, going from the dark side of the scene, going under the feet of the shepherd, where he straddles the scene right there. And then the scene moves up a mountain, which is a, a, um, a, a, a technique in iconography of space and height and going into a space of God. So you're going up, 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 and the scene then becomes into uh, the colors of the rainbow. Now, this is what Andrea tells me the scene is like. And going up over the mountain and making an arc over the shepherd becomes rainbow and then becomes the whole cosmos, the cosmic cosmic look of the... planets and of 
um, like the Milky Way and all, all of that which is in the cosmic realm of stars, a starry night, and the, and the almost as if, I mean, they say we're all made of stardust. So it's going into that stardust, which is also in the seam. And the seam, it goes, becomes stardust. Wow. Hmm. That's so, going to be cool. That sounds like that would even make a cool poster on a wall. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's, that's what an icon does. Yes, exactly. So that's my role. But I'm waiting yet to see the face of the, uh, of the shepherd. I cannot wait to see that cover. You're going to have to shoot a copy of it our way or something. Yeah, yeah JP. I'd be happy to do that. Definitely. Yep. This, you know, the symbolism of the colors is very important. Uh, um, this is something I've actually done some research in the ancient world. Uh, a number of the philosophers that I've read from the ancient world talk about the idea that the soul itself has multiple colors. Mm -hmm. And those colors, they have different interpretations of why you have colors. Um, their colors are associated with virtues and vices. And so certain uh, colors uh, indicate that a, a soul is um, scarred by vices and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that those colors have to change and alter and, and, and morph. And that's th this area that Kate is talking about, the seam, the middle ground. You can call it purgatory. You know, I, I deliberately didn't call it purgatory because I didn't want... Uh, I wanted to be able to define what it was without people not saying, oh, I know what that is. Um, sure. You know, I wanted to go away from that and to be able to say, this is a place of changing that which is broken in a soul. So in other words, think about this. This life beats us up. You know, it breaks your heart in different ways. Now, some of us get it worse than others. We all know somebody who's gone through a lot of suffering. You know, I, I've seen this point blank in my own life. I, I have an older sister uh, who died at, she was 45 years old. Oh, wow, um, sorry. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. She she had suffered with mental illness. Uh, she was suffered from bipolar disorder and, uh, you know, uh, schizophrenia. And the, the drugs that they gave her to deal with that caused, you know, residual issues in her body. Our kidneys basically began to shut down and that sort of thing. And eventually um, we lost her. But, mm. you know, I look at her life and she suffered a great deal. She really did. She suffered. And, you know, mental illness is certainly, it, it's no joke. I mean, it's a terrible thing, a terrible cross. And you, those of us who love somebody who's gone through that, you ask yourself many times, why them? Why does that person carry such a, a terrible burden and not me? Why wasn't it me? Why, you know, right. that kind of thing. And if these are questions we don't have the answers for, that's the bottom line. But... <laughs> You know, you think about this, that um, a soul might have, you know, wounds that it encounters from this life, you know, that need to be kind of resolved before you're ready. You know, th think of it as almost like a detox chamber or a, a chamber like if you've been exposed to something where you kind of need to be washed down before you can move on to kind of separate yourself from from things that are, you know, uh, that are holding you back or or. Uh, diminishing you in some way. And so that's kind of what this area, this scene is all about. So the shepherd encounters souls that are broken and wounded. And his role is very much a role to try to help them to be able to resolve those issues and move on. But it's not an easy process. Uh, you know, I, that's something that's very important to me is to, you know, that there's not a, this isn't a magic wand. This is, you know, a struggle, you know, that, that, um, 
there are many different reasons why we struggle. Even, you know, we all know this. We have, you know, we can know the right thing, but doing it, you know, <laughs> and that struggle that we have of, of trying to do the right thing uh, and to reflect that even in the afterlife. And I had somebody say, well, boy, you really have a kind of a dark view of the afterlife. And I said, let me ask you this question. What is it about this life that makes you think that the next next life is going to be easy. Oh, good point. You know, yeah, good point. Uh, and so I, I just don't think God does easy. And uh, that doesn't mean that we're being punished. I don't mean that at all, but that growth comes through struggle. And that I think that that's kind of very important to the story. Anyway, with that as a word, I just kind of point to Cristobal to talk about his, his uh, you know, both he and Kate have read this story already, The Path of Souls, and he's going to be telling a very specific part of the story. Okay. Yeah, basically, the, the character that I'm doing, uh, his name is Henri uh, Tournier, and he's a, a soldier who fought under Napoleon's orders uh, in the late 1700s. He was involved in an early campaign in, in Napoleon's career, which was the campaign in Egypt and Palestine. So basically, this guy, he's a young uh, soldier with a wife and, and uh, a little daughter, and uh, he kind of goes in, at least from reading the script, and then, you know, as, a, as an artist, you kind of go through your own, um, you, you kind of make the narrative your own in a way, and you kind of expand, sort of like an actor when you're going to play a part and you think about, okay, what's, you know, what are some of the things here? And for me, I picture him as having gone into it very sort of idealistic you know he's really buying into the whole thing and we're gonna you know we're gonna you know it's like you know there's this new republic and this new way of doing things and we're gonna really change the world and you know bring uh the, the best of civilization to this place and you know and get the best out of it and everything and he goes there and of course you know it, it quite doesn't turn out quite that way um and so anyway uh he dies in the midst of that and uh, and then basically it's all of the trauma uh, and, and some of it is sort of a moral trauma that he has to kind of work through uh, when he's in the scene, you know? And one of the things with, with the, these characters in this fictional universe is that when they're there, they don't always necessarily know that they're dead. So that kind of adds another, that, that adds another layer to things. And they sort of are, uh, the way that things work in there, in this particular area of the scene is, there are, uh, you know, as Andrea said, there are several different characters, different soldiers from different uh, periods and cultures. And yet they kind of see things present themselves to souls in the scene according to their own experience and their own history and their own background. So you know, you have this, this area where you have these soldiers uh, who have fallen in different periods, but they kind of see each other as though they were from their own, uh, you know, their own, nice their own battle and so forth. So it's a very layered narrative, you know? Um, it's sort of like you have multiple stories that come together and form one story, and depending on who is, you know, seeing whose eyes the story is being told through, it looks a little different, you know, almost kind of like real life in a way, you know. Right. Um, you know, it, it's it's very very interesting. Um, and so, you know, there's basically a process of coming to greater awareness, you know, a, a greater consciousness, and um, kind of evolving uh, out of that and healing, having some of those wounds, um, you know, things that people have suffered. Uh, you know, as a result of their own or other people's sins or whatever, and just kind of healing and moving into another level. 
many, many layers to the shepherd here. Absolutely. Very it, though. That's what makes a good story. You guys can tell you, uh, every one of you are passionate about it, and that passion definitely uh, translates to the work. At least I mm-hmm. think so. Absolutely. No, without <clears throat> question. But you guys have a Kickstarter going till April 6th to uh, get money to pay for the artist for the project, correct? Absolutely. That's something we're working on day. I have never been so plugged into social media. And, you know, <laughs> and it, it cracks me up because I was thinking about it today. It's like by um, by nature, I'm more of a kind of a, a re, you know somebody who's more interested in reflection and quiet and and um, you know it. And social media is anything but that. It's just oh, that's the truth. It's just so crazy. And and it's I'm learning stuff about social media like. You know, like Twitter, I have these people follow me, and I find out that some of them, what they're doing for a living is quite very questionable. You know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> why are you following me? Uh, no, my, you know, I, I really would prefer not. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, mm-hmm. Like, so you wonder, how did I, our paths cross? Like, yeah. How could this possibly happen? <laughs> But then you meet some really amazing people, too, through this. And I I have to say uh, that just, you know, we've done a number of these podcasts, and there are some really amazing people doing these podcast shows. I got to say, I I just, I'm not just saying that to you, but we, you know, there's there's one podcast I'm going to single out. uh, um, It's uh, Basement Fodder, and the guys are uh, Dave and Todd. They're in Ohio. And uh, they are a riot. They really are. And you need to understand some perspective here. What I do for a living, I'm a theologian, okay? And like a couple of weeks before they had me on the show, they went to uh, Sexapalooza. <laughs> okay. And I'm thinking to myself, this should be interesting, um, you know? And uh, it turned out that we ended up, first of all, we they did a show, a review of The Shepherd where they read it. And they really, not only did they like the book, which was, of course, it's always gratifying when somebody likes your book, but they really got it. And in listening to their review, as they they talked about specific panels, and you could tell that they really were plugged into what we were trying to do. And that was meaningful. And then we did an interview. Uh, Todd and I did an interview together. And that really turned out to be a very meaningful interview because he was talking about, you know, how the themes of loss and grief that are so strong in the first shepherd story, how that had really uh, connected with him because of loss that he had suffered in his own life. And, and of course, as a writer, that's what you live for is to be able to, you know, you're trying to tell stories that connect to the human condition, you know, and to, to hear that you've actually done that is all that I've ever wanted as a writer. I mean, I you don't do this for a paycheck. If you did, you'd be an absolute idiot. I can assure you that. <laughs> that's not why you should do it. Uh, you do it because I've heard people say this before, you know, is that you write because you can't imagine not writing. And that really, you know, it's is, got to be true. And uh, But this idea of writing and telling stories that really connect with other people and, you uh, you share something about the, what it is to be a human being. And um, if you can do that, that's what this is all about. What a small world we live in, yeah. because the Basement Fodder guys, we've actually had the pleasure of meeting, and they actually record, I think, 10 minutes from where we're at here. <laughs> is, Based in yeah, the same city time. in Ohio. We're yeah. in uh, Hilliard, Ohio here. So, yeah, small world. <laughs> Very small much. world with 
isolated pockets of genius here and there. Yeah, yeah. right, right. I don't know if uh, we're considered that or not, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be considered that someday. Uh, let's let's all agree to pretend. Okay. Right? Pretending's fun. Well, guys, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And again, that Kickstarter is going till April 6th. We're going to put a link on our website to help direct people your way. You mentioned uh, now being on social media. Are each of you under your own handle, or is there just one handle for the Shepherd? Uh, actually, uh, Kate and Cristobal are both. They have their own, uh, you know, Facebook pages. I think uh, Kate. What are what other things are you on? Um, I I'm Instagram, uh, Skype, uh, email. Um, Zoom. <laughs> just so, is the handle just your name? Yeah, Kate Kinsler. Okay. Cristobal, I know your Facebook and what else are you? Yeah, I mean basically Facebook and Twitter. I don't really use Twitter that much. I'm very I'm very passive on Twitter, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, Understandably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah, we're. I would say we're pretty strong on Twitter. Uh, we're. It's Cal. Uh, Shepherd. It's at Shepherd Caliber. Uh, referencing caliber comics uh and then you can find the shepherd facebook page uh and then of course andrea lorenzo molinari on on facebook as well my son roberto molinari has his page um you know and then of course we're on you know uh tumblr we're on instagram i'm probably forgetting something too so yeah we're out there you're across the platforms there's <laughs> places for people to find you yeah very much so well, guys, thank you so much for sending us a copy. It was highly enjoyable. We can't wait to see the next one. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you so much. You're wonderful interviewers. Oh, well, <laughs> thank bless you. your heart. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Pleasure's all ours. Likewise, yes. Sure. Yeah. Check what we have on the website. Go to www.candairpodcast.com where you can see show highlights, guest info, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, go to the Wall of Justice and see the Hall of Heroes, check out our YouTube videos on our video page, and if you'd like to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contact page. And don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And again, we're going to be at the SpaceCon here in Columbus, Ohio, April... 9th and 10th. 9th and 10th. And I believe last year the Basement Fodder guys were there, too. So now yeah. we have an icebreaker in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Wave to them from across. Out? We know the Shepherd people. We yeah. know you do, too. High yeah. <laughs> sign across the con. There you go. <laughs> Dave, actually, uh, I'd send him a, a shirt. We have a Shepherd uh, t-shirt. Sent him a uh, Shepherd T-shirt. He actually wore it to the Lexington Con. Uh, this what is a couple weeks ago. So, oh, and really? I saw pictures of him. Yeah, on, on his page for that. So it's kind of cool. Well, hey, shoot us a T-shirt. We'll wear it too. Absolutely. <laughs> Send me your size, and, and you got it. Oh, really? Oh, wow, cool. I was just kidding, but sure, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't kidding about I'd do it, but I was just kidding about, man, that came out wrong. Yeah. I didn't right. want you to feel obligated to send us Not something, but hey, <laughs> we will definitely rock that shirt. All right. All right, well, until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. Jack Doherty. Jake Runyon. Andrea Plenari. Cristobal Torres. And Kate Kinsler. Thanks for listening, everyone. see this movie but wait timmy's blind but what am i supposed to do why not try a podcast
Spirit. Spirit. All the comic and pop culture entertainment you could want in the Candare podcast. Finally, a form of entertainment not fully reliant on visual stimulation. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! I was... It's good. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. <laughs> 